Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we are continuing our tour through the Canada program at Harvard, and we are very lucky today to have the William Lyon Mackenzie King Visiting Professor of Canadian Studies, who is also the Canada Research Chair of Global Migration at the Balsillie School at Laurier University. It's Allison Mounts. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. So you are pretty much in charge of the program this year as the, the faculty member in charge of the program, the Canada program here this year, because there is no permanent on-staff faculty person That's who, right. who's in charge. So for you, what, what has the year been like? And, and as the person responsible for programming, what is the Canada program to you, and, and how does it operate here? It is a program that was founded in 1967 and funded by David Rockefeller in honor of his friend, uh, or rather his father's friend, William Lyon Mackenzie King. And it really is here to promote Canadian studies and Canadian issues on a campus that doesn't have dedicated resources, or prior to this establishment of the endowment, didn't have dedicated resources to teach courses or hire faculty. And so the idea is that each year the program brings in visiting faculty Mm -hmm. like you and like me and our other colleagues to teach courses, to organize speakers, to give talks, to generally promote all things Canadian. And so I have really enjoyed that this year, uh, having resources to invite lively and relevant speakers in and to engage people across campus in dialogue around Canadian issues. Mm. And something that's been fun as well is the the program tries to draw in not only the Harvard community, but the, the larger community of Canadians, and there are many of them living here in Cambridge and in Boston, um, more broadly in the region. Yeah, because we had the event with the uh, consulate in that's the right, fall, David uh, and David Alward came in. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. There mm-hmm. was an event that the consulate put on at MIT that was mm-hmm. some sort of meet and greet type thing that mm-hmm. I went to. Uh, I think I might have been the only person who was yeah, around that day. I that one. Um, so, so it's been interesting to sort of see the, the wider Canada community and, and like the election in the fall. We went to the, I think we all went to the the election night viewing that's party right. of one of the Canada clubs. So that's there's right. a lot more Canadians on campus than I ever would have thought yeah. there were. Not only with students, but just with faculty and and, vis- and people like us who, mm-hmm. who are just around. Mm-hmm. It's been a, a really interesting experience. And for you, it's your second time mm-hmm. as part of the Canada program, the first time mm-hmm. as a junior faculty member. Right. Uh, the program was reconstructed this year right. so that Tracy and I as postdocs could be here. Basically, your position was divvied up. In your old position was broken down into two positions. That's right. So Tracy and I were here. So what was the diff- main difference for you going from that junior faculty research spot to then the chair, basically, of the program? Well, one big difference is that when I was here the first time in the junior position, as you say, which was called a research fellowship, there were only two of us here with the Canada program overall. 
And so there was the more senior position, which was then occupied by Ruth Phillips. And I was in the more junior position. And we weren't, our offices weren't even necessarily (laughs) together. So Ruth um, had her office in the history department. So we saw each other at events. And I I actually really enjoyed spending time with Ruth and, and really enjoyed the programming that she put on. But it was a much smaller community of scholars um, here with the program. And in the in the meantime, or in the time that passed since then, that was 2009-2010, two things happened. One is that they increased the number of positions, as you mentioned, yeah. turning the junior position into two postdocs. And they also moved the offices altogether into this lovely building that we're sitting in right now. (laughs) So now we actually have space. And Mm -hmm. as a geographer, I know that space (laughs) matters. And it's somewhat symbolically right over the bridge next to the main building, the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, (laughs) which the Canada program is a part of. And so um, that means there are more people here. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's more space for other people to come as visitors to the Canada program, such as Sarah Smith, who's here on Shirk Funding, uh, or Nicole, whom you've also interviewed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Keegan Williams is a PhD student who came with me from Wilfrid Laurier. Jennifer Heineman is my partner, also a scholar who's here visiting. So we've had this lively, lovely group, and I've I've really found, I, I so enjoyed having a community of people here that, I mean, here every day that we engage and here at every event, it's been quite fun. Mm -hmm. For me, the main difference between the two positions in terms of the workload is that I did more administrative work this time. Um, Last time, I wasn't necessarily in charge of uh, organizing the programming. I was expected and enjoyed attending the programming. Mm -hmm. This time, I had more decision-making and more involvement actually long before I arrived mm-hmm. in inviting people to come um, both to give talks, give the Canada seminar, and also to organize a, a workshop or a small conference, which we had a couple of weeks ago, which you were part of, mm-hmm. on uh, shifting terrain of political asylum in North America. And then, as you know, because you gave a really good lunchtime talk, um, we had a new kind of innovation this year, which was a lunch, a, kind of a lunch seminar series mm-hmm. that enabled those of us who are here to share our work with each other and with others here on campus. Um, So it wasn't just kind of bringing in the fancy people from outside, um, but getting to talk about works in progress and Mm -hmm. and what's going on right here, right now. I think that was the thing I might have enjoyed the most was those lunches because, I mean, I enjoyed the the seminars that we had on Monday afternoons, Uh just learning about different ideas, different concepts. And and it's particularly because I don't think any of the people who came into the seminars were historians or worked in history departments, if I remember right, which was was really a lot of fun for me because I'm used to listening to historians and hearing historians, talking to historians. So to have people from law departments, geography departments, Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun to get different perspectives, different ideas. Different ways of giving talks. Yeah, very different styles, Mm -hmm. uh, which which was really interesting. But the lunches were really good because it was us talking about our own stuff and it's it's you're right because we're all sort of on this floor together we see each other every day but through the fall didn't really get a real sense of what everybody was doing mm-hmm. in terms of their work like we, you talk about it in a sort of general way like oh i study broadcasting trace it as mm-hmm. urban history and mm-hmm. so on and so forth mm-hmm. But you don't really know exactly what that means. So those lunch talks were really cool to actually get a sense of what everyone does, how they approach their yeah. work. Yeah. It, it was a lot of fun. And yeah. just being around here, too, because Tracy knows the guy who had the junior research 
position last year. Uh-huh. And he said that, yeah, no one was really around that much. Mm-hmm. So for us this year, not just the fact that there's the two postdocs, but that we were lucky enough to have Jennifer and Keegan and Sarah mm-hmm. on our floor. And Nicole was around a lot. Mm-hmm. Just to have that community was really a lot of fun. And when you think about it, if Sarah wasn't here on a shirk and if you weren't in a position where Jennifer and Keegan could come. In theory, that office could be three people who we don't know. Yeah, it, would be, it and, could, be much, could have been much yeah. quieter. Which I think the people across the hall would have enjoyed mm-hmm. if it was much quieter. But, <laughs> but we, we, had, we had a lot of fun. We had a great year. We had a great year. Yeah, it, it's, been, it's been a good time. And so in addition to this, you, as I mentioned off the top, you're a Canada Research Chair mm-hmm. in Global Migration at mm-hmm. the Balsillie School. And we were talking about this at lunch the other day that Canada Research Chairs kind of work differently depending on the school. Mm-hmm. So at Laurier, you get a 1-1 teaching load, mm-hmm. and that allows you to pursue the research uh, that you do on migration and uh, issues with asylum mm-hmm. ar- around the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about the difference then for you in being here versus being at Laurier, mm-hmm. given that your teaching load here was the same as it was Right. At, at Laurier. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned they had a lot more administrative responsibilities yeah. here. Well, different. I had different? different administrative responsibilities because I think when you're not at your home campus, some of the day-to-day admin work that you do falls away. So, mm. you know, a large part of faculty workload is attending meetings. Right. <laughs> uh, everything from faculty meetings to the various committees that we serve on, whether they're university-wide committees or committees of graduate students. And so, you know, when you when you step away from that, a lot of that kind of day-to-day buzz and demand falls away. There's still a little bit of it, you know, a lot of stuff on Skype, for example, where I'm still working with graduate students back home, especially. But I think I've said in the past that some, some people might have the idea that this is a sabbatical, yeah. but it's actually not a sabbatical, not this position. It involves teaching, and it involves administrative work. So I'm, I'm officially not on sabbatical leave, but on professional leave from my right. from Wilfrid Laurier. But yeah, I can tell you more if you're interested about the Canada Research Chairs program. As well. Yeah, because a lot of people, I think, at least I don't really know much about it. We, we talked about it a little bit on Friday, and, yeah. and I didn't know really how it was structured. I, I just assumed mm-hmm. that the, a Canada Research Chair got a bunch of research money mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. But apparently that's not the case, that, that the position is funded by the federal government and the school has some discretion on how they choose to allocate those funds. So a Canada research chair at Laurier isn't the same as a Canada research chair at Toronto right. in the way you would have access to the resources. Correct. So that, that to me, I find that really interesting that, yeah. that it's not a uniform thing. Yeah. Um, no, I was just going to say that you're right that about a couple of things. One is that it has something to do with putting resources towards research, but mm-hmm. it's not necessarily, um, that doesn't necessarily translate into the same kind of material resources at each campus. It really depends on how the university uses it. And they're always sort of posted with a job, right? Like schools post it with a job in mind. Or That's they, right. Because right? Yeah. they're competitive within the school themselves. That's right. And then the school puts forward the application. That's right. And beyond That's school. So basically, my understanding, I'm not an expert, my, but my understanding of the history of this program, which I believe started around 2000, 
is that it was a response to the brain drain and the concern that a lot of Canadian PhDs and faculty members were traveling outside of Canada. And so it was originally started to, in some part, draw them back, but also attract international, leading mm. international scholars to Canadian universities. And, and so universities basically compete to hold these CRCs. They can get a certain number each year. And my understanding is that number is dependent on how much tri-council funding they've received in the past. So there's actually mm. an equation. And then within those some of those parameters, they identify thematic areas that they want to enhance on campus. And so in my case, it was global migration. Um, and they then compete by first finding someone that they would like to make an offer to. And, and then they also have to show to the CRC, to the secretariat, why it is that this is a strategic hire for the campus and also how they as a university will promote the work um, or enhance the work of the scholar. So um, synergy, all that showing synergy between the scholar, (laughs) their area of expertise, the university, its area of expertise. Mm -hmm. And so not all CRCs are awarded. You know, they, they put forth a name and there's often a contingency attached to that and again, universities have different ways of handling that too. So they might hire someone and put them forward, but then say, you know, if, if this doesn't come through for whatever reason, we'll offer you a, a tenure position or something. Right. So yeah, so for me, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. It's it's great to have these resources which are dedicated to research. So what that looks like for me in my day to day work is a is a, a lower teaching load, mm-hmm. um, with the expectation that I will find research funding to support the research that Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah, it's been great. Um, And Laurier normally has a two-and-two teaching load, so I teach a one-and-one teaching load, which is split between undergrad and grad teaching. And I should add that I'm actually cross-appointed at Laurier, so I'm 51% in geography and environmental (laughs) studies. It's Uh my home department for tenure. And then housed my office, and and half of my teaching is in the Balsillie School for International Affairs. Right. And I have to say, though, that I've always been somewhat biased against the CRC, because when I was an undergrad Mm -hmm. at Nipissing, its second year, Steve High Mm -hmm. uh, left Nipissing to go to Concordia, where he, for CRC in in oral history... And that always bummed me out because I really liked him. Yeah. So it's it's sort of... So for me, I was always like, oh, I, I hate that program just because of that. But And you've touched on something important and a, a critique that's often leveled at the program, which is that universities have used them for poaching. Right. Um, they've used them for retention. So they use them for different reasons. And another, I think, important critique has been to do with equity. There was a lawsuit. I don't know a lot of the details. It was before my time as a CRC, but I've read a little bit about it, a lawsuit against the program for gender imbalances mm-hmm. in the granting of CRCs and I think particularly the senior CRCs. So right. now there's a there are mechanisms and procedures built into the CRC process that universities are required to follow or supposed mm. to follow around having their searches be inclusive. Right. So there are definitely issues about you know what the what what some of the unintended consequences right. of the program have been. Well, that's interesting because I read an article when I first got here. I think I saw it on Twitter or something, and someone was critical because they, they looked at full professors at Harvard mm-hmm. and the gender imbalance, uh, and I think even racial imbalance, mm-hmm. uh, the just general lack of diversity in full professors at Harvard, mm-hmm. and they felt that that was a, a right way to criticize the current administrative structure at Harvard. And I thought that might be a little unfair because the full professors would 
reflect the hiring practices from like 30 years ago as opposed to necessarily today. So if you, to me, it would make more sense to look at the hiring practices of the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And because those are the people who are going to be in all likelihood, full professors Mm -hmm. later on. Mm -hmm. Um, And I realize the way that things work at this institution is a little different Mm -hmm. in terms of how tenure and promotion go, Mm -hmm. but could it not be the same thing with these CRCs that the senior people who are getting them, that that's reflective of the way things were say in the eighties more so than, than the way it is now. Not necessarily. I mean, I think each of the things you're saying is a piece of the larger picture. And so there are lots of factors that need to be taken into account when we talk about inequity Mm -hmm. in hiring practices, but also promotion practices Mm -hmm. and also the reality of the day-to-day job, um, Mm -hmm. which might be our segue to, to discussing slow scholarship. But, um, you know, from what I've read, I've done a bit of reading on this, and I do think that that situation, you know, I'm not an expert on, you know, the, yeah. the demographics of Harvard faculty, but from what you're saying and from what I've observed, I don't think it's so different from other places. Um, certainly there are gender imbalances and that they become um, more pronounced as people become more senior, so the higher up the hierarchy you move. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have analyzed this in different ways. Um, so it's partly a story about hiring, but it's also important to look at what happens after hiring. So, for example, um, you know what what happens to people while they're an assistant professor, when they go up for tenure, as an at once they become an associate professor. Um, how are these processes gendered? How are they racialized? How are they classed? And then how do you get this attrition um, where you start off with in you know in any in particular fields, sometimes over-representation of women as graduates, for example, as PhDs in certain fields, and then you can look over time um, at how that percentage shrinks and shrinks as you get into the into the upper levels. Hmm. And so, for example, there was a, a very, very well-read and well-cited study done in 1999 by a group of people at MIT about gender and um, kind of faculty work and tenure and promotion. And what that study found was that the, what mattered was not the moment of hiring or even the formal procedures, but the informal things, mm. the little things that mattered and that accrued over time for people. So it might be that they started off getting paid a little bit less. Well, if you start off getting paid a little bit less, right, yeah. over time you end up getting paid a lot less, or mm. what is it now, 20% less, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, or that their offices were a little bit smaller, their lab space was a little bit smaller, mm. or that you know they didn't get as much voice time in meetings, or they found themselves talked over in meetings, or weren't invited to certain kinds of social activities like golfing or right. you know drinks. And so uh, you know whatever those little things are, they were found to be as important as say the moment of you know putting in your file yeah. for promotion. So um, I think all of these things you know, factor into the kind of mix um, when we look at what happens to people. Mm. And I think you're right. That is a good segue into the, the slow scholarship stuff because you wrote a uh, an opinion piece for University Affairs on May 9th, or it was published on May 9th, mm-hmm. uh, entitled All for Slow Scholarship and Slow Scholarship for All. And this was based off or came out of an article, a collaborative article that you were part of entitled For Slow Scholarship, A Feminist Politics 
of resistance through collective action, mm-hmm. uh, which is co-authored with ten other people. That's right. Both it's, of those, by the way, the the opinion piece and yes. the and the article are co-authored by the same eleven people. Okay. Well, it appears on University Affairs. Appear it says by Allison Mounts at the top. At the top it says Allison Mounts et al. Oh, it does. And then, oh, okay. Yeah, and I don't know. This is their, I guess, their way of doing things. At the bottom, it lists all of our right. names and affiliations. Yeah. So, and and this is sort of a, a topic that. I didn't really know much about until I read this stuff and we, and we started talking about it. Mm-hmm. So for you, if you just could define slow scholarship and what it actually means, because I think the way you explain it, at least in my head, the way you explain it is different from how I would conceive it mm-hmm. when I just hear slow scholarship. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that um, because it's been part of some of the debate and some of the response to the idea of slow scholarship. So for us, uh, for the 11 co-authors who wrote this article... Um, and I'll, I can tell you more about you know why we wrote that article and where it came from. Slow scholarship is not just about an individual action, one person just slowing things down. <laughs> <laughs> it's about a collective action or a series of actions um, explored, imagined, undertaken by, by a collective or by collectives. In other words, how can we reimagine our contemporary work life, which is so characterized by acceleration, you know, by, by the pressure cooker to do more and more with what feels like less and less time. Right. Um, and so uh, it's really thinking through how we can work together and not only how can we, but how must we work together mm-hmm. in order to slow down um, our day-to-day work lives and change the way uh, that we work to try to uh, respond to and engage and even be proactive in um, not just becoming more and more frenetic and exhausted and ill in some cases, yeah. you know, like the extreme is that it really pushes people out who, who, who for many reasons can't, you know, embody this frenetic, overworked um, person. And people are more than the frenetic, overworked person. They are more than their work. And so it's also about how we can engage a feminist ethics of care in, um, in, in, in our work lives. And if I may just say where it came from, um, two colleagues of mine who are at Guelph University, so Roberta Hawkins, um, and Alice Havorka, who actually left a couple of years ago, Guelph, for, for Queen's University. The three of us received a grant from the Antipode Foundation to, to host a workshop among feminist geographers coming from both sides of the border in the Great Lakes region to really think just organically about kind of what was happening, what, what was the new scholarship, what were the emerging political issues among feminist geographers, what was going on. So we organized this very organic um, conference, some would call it the UnConference, which was an idea that we, that we learned from another group. And so we didn't have an agenda. We met for two days. We had structured the time into sessions with very, very loose topics Mm -hmm. organized around things that we were having conversations about in advance over email about what people wanted to talk about. And something that emerged when we all arrived was that we all arrived exhausted. So it was May. It was the end of the academic year. People just could not stop talking about how tired they were or about how they were struggling or about how their colleagues and their students were struggling, um, whether it was you know the demands and just keeping up or their well-being or mental, mental health issues. So, for example, our colleagues at Queen's University had experienced um, a cluster of student, student suicides that they were, mm. they were 
were responding to and, and trying to, to understand. And so we had endless conversations about this and, and started talking at that workshop about the idea of slow scholarship and what it would mean to, to work together to change how we worked. And so after that workshop, there were about 25 people at that workshop, and afterwards, a smaller group of us, really, it was open to anyone who wanted to participate, and 11 of us um, ended up writing this piece, which we published in um, ACME, which is an on- online open access mm-hmm. journal of critical geography. And some of the stories that, uh, before we published it, because even open access online publishing process can be slow, yeah. <laughs> um, we posted it on academia.edu and ResearchGate, and it was downloaded over 30,000 times very quickly. It became kind of a phenomenon online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we realized that we really struck a chord and that the experiences that we talked about and the, and the hopes that we wrote about in that article uh, really resonated with people. But one of the things that I wonder about, and, and this is just entirely because of where I am in, in the process, is that you know the people that you're talking about are, are faculty, mm-hmm. um, whereas someone like me, I'm fresh out of the PhD, mm-hmm. relatively fresh, 18 months, mm-hmm. whatever it's been, on the job market in a job market that isn't very good for people who are on the job. It's very much a buyer's market. So for someone like me, slow scholarship seems like it could really hurt my career. Because, mm-hmm. uh, sure, if I want to get in, and then I can get, engage in slow scholarship in theory, mm-hmm. but if I do it now, I can't really get in my foot in the door. Given the the dynamics of the academic job market at the moment, mm-hmm. you know, for someone like me, slow scholarship, I don't see it as feasible in my own career. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to people in, in my stage? Yeah. Uh, and, and how and how would somebody like, like me, who I, I understand what you're saying and I can see the benefits of it, you know, in theory, right. but on a practical, personal level, yeah. I, I don't know if I would be able to engage myself. Yeah. Well, let me say that our conception of slow scholarship, and there are others out there, is very much about the day-to-day um, right. ways of working. It's it's very grounded, and it is it is absolutely engaged with what you're raising, which is so important, and that is the change in the structure of university and faculty work, and the turn towards intensifying people's precarity and really exploiting labor yeah. you know, without ample support or or pay. And so I happen to have this statistic. Stick with yeah. me. <laughs> and an excellent piece written by Dr. Carrie Nelson, AAUP president, who writes this essay called Colleges Are the Tipping Point. Will the Current Crisis Take Us Beyond? And I think he's pointing out something that we note in the article as well, which is that universities are not a vacuum. They are changing in their, you know, in their workforce structure in the ways that so many industries are changing in this turn towards the casualization of labor and associated precarity for people. So he notes in his opening paragraph that in 1975, 33% of the um, faculty teaching in universities was uh, made up of contingent positions, and and 30 years later, 66% um, was contingent labor. So that's in 2005, and today we have roughly 70%. So this is an incredibly dramatic change. And so the question then becomes, and this is the question that he's addressing and the question that we're addressing as well in our conception of slow scholarship, how do we respond to this mm-hmm. change? 
Um, how do we respond to the fact that part of the devolution of more and more is uh, to not only um, people who have secure positions, um, you know, a tenure track or tenured faculty, but also people who don't, um, who are also being asked to do more and more with way less than their tenured colleagues. And so we all wrote this from a position of, of understanding that we had relative resources and power and therefore a responsibility to engage in ways that supported those who don't. In other words, if you have some resources, you are responsible for sharing those resources and, and, and you are in a relative position of privilege to try to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so some examples um, from the paper and from our work lives that, that we talk about are things like co-authorship, mentoring, finding ways to employ people who need positions in, you know, for example, postdoctoral positions, getting on the committees that are doing hiring to try to hire people who might not be, you know, working in the in the ways that always play the game or who might right. not be the usual, um, you know, rise to the top candidates to say, yeah, you know, not just say no in ways that make one's individual work life slower, but to say no and to say yes to things that can help us to make our work lives better for all. So in other words, saying yes strategically to reviewing tenure promotion files or being on certain hiring committees, engaging in ways that we can, you know, join in and not just refuse, (laughs) but join in to make a more inclusive better workplace in small everyday ways Mm -hmm. you know we haven't yet come up with the plan for the total revolution (laughs) i hope it's (laughs) ahead and uh, surely we are arriving there ever so slowly (laughs) but we have this list of very practical things in the article Mm -hmm. um and and they're and they're things that you know that we try to do some of them relate to practices on email which is such a mundane but a mundane topic, but one that's central to everyone's work life right. these days. We talk about organizing. We talk about how we engage each other in in caring and careful ways. We talk about making time to think, making time to write differently. Some of this is about how we count. So, I mean, a big way that universities are changing that so many people have documented is the the metrics culture and the counting culture and how that assigns value to certain kinds of labor Mm -hmm. over and and certain kinds of work over others. And so it's very product-oriented, you know, how many grants, how many publications. And so one of the strategies is counting things differently, Mm -hmm. you know, making other things count things like collaboration and co-authorship and things that take time community engagement um so all the kinds of work that go into uh, trying to trying to shift the hierarchies in which we work and the things that it values and devalues along the way right and one of the things too like like so when you fill out like a shirk application like you can tell what they care about Mm -hmm. based on not only what is asked for but the order in which it is asked and and one of the things that when i started this show one of the faculty members at the University of Ottawa said to me, was like, you know, that's going to take a lot of time. And it's not going to help you get a job. And in fact, it might hurt you from getting a job. And I said, that's fine. Like, I'm okay with that, if that's the case, because I just want to do this. I think it would be fun. Yeah, and, uh, I think that's very cynical. It is, but to, to, <laughs> to this point, it has proven to be true, right? Like, it, it, I think it helped me get this uh, in some way, but I, I don't know if it's helped me that much. On, on the job market, but one of the things too, though, that that strikes me is that this is the first time that I've really 
seen any sort of day-to-day academic environment. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're because when you're a graduate student, you don't really see it mm-hmm. that much. Mm-hmm. You know, I would sit in an office once a week semesters when I taught mm-hmm. for an afternoon, and mm-hmm. so that so I didn't really have an engagement in day-to-day stuff. The rest of the time, I was usually at the archives, off doing my own thing. So this is the first time I've I've actually seen it and what it's been like, and and to me, it's not what I thought it was going to be. When I when I moved here, I actually thought I would have to show up at 9 o'clock every morning and be here till 5. Like, I oh, thought there was an expectation of a 9 to 5 uh-huh. job, uh-huh. which clearly it hasn't been. And, uh-huh. and the sense I get is that's sort of reflective of how academics work in general because there's this idea that you're kind of on call all the time. Right. So it's the blessing and the curse, yeah. um, you know, or what one of my colleagues calls the freedom to work all the time. <laughs> um, I think, you know, and I think that one thing I've learned over the course of my career where I've worked at a few different universities now, different kinds of universities, is that work cultures matter, institutional cultures matter, and they vary greatly. So mm-hmm. you may well be in a department where you're expected to show up every day, or you may not be. And part of that is also, I think, you know, what we talk, we don't necessarily explicitly engage that issue in in our article on slow scholarship, but I can see it being a part of it. You know, like, how do we, how do we structure this place? How, how are we present? How do we interact? But it's true that people don't necessarily have nine to five jobs and that this, this can be, uh, or nine to five hours in this job. And this is a blessing because we have a lot of freedom in how we organize our time. Mm. But the flip side of that is that um, as the workload increases over time, we have we struggle to fit it into right. a nine to five um, mm. kind of eight hour workday. And in fact, I just recently read this study that was done out of Boise, where there was a big survey of how faculty they asked people to actually log for a certain number of weeks how they spend their time, the mm. nitty gritty of every day and they found I mean I think they found people working something like 66 hour weeks um, and part of it was you know more than a full day on the weekend Mm. Um, and so yes there's freedom Um, but then the question becomes you know what does that what does that look like in the day to day and also with the innovations around social media and technology now you know it's hard to escape work and so you know when do you when do you not work becomes Mm -hmm. almost a more relevant question for some academics and I think I think that's a problem for people because that leads to things like burnout and it also has serious consequences when you think about who can and can't participate in a workforce that expects people to to work all the time right well I guess for me the my personal experience with burnout would be what I've referred to I, I like to believe I've coined this reading hangover uh-huh. uh, it's when you finish your comps uh-huh. That there's a period of time where you just can't do anything. I remember that it. You're just completely gone. And, and the way I came up with, I call it hangover because just like with alcohol, how fast you go matters. Mm-hmm. So like I finished my comps in retrospect way too quickly. Mm-hmm. Like I crammed too much into a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. So I was really useless for six weeks after, mm-hmm. at least six weeks after. I couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Then people who spaced it out a little more like a, a night drinking where you're, you know, have a drink and then a glass of water or something. Mm-hmm. They took a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and then we're sort of back on their feet. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can relate to the, the idea of burnout in that respect. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was just, I think, being naive and, and wanting to 
get it done really fast and some sort of weird pride mm-hmm. thing of wanting to be the first one to finish, yeah. which seems so stupid in retrospect. No, but so but, common. I mean, yeah. I want to say two things in response to that. One is that there's this whole field of study out there that I'm not you know, an expert in, but it's about you know, organizational work culture and what makes workers more or less successful, productive, you know, again, we can trouble all those words and what they mean, but mm-hmm. it's not good to have people working all the time for exactly the reasons you say that that leads to burnout and less productivity. But um, the other thing I wanted to say is I think your experience is a common one. I share it too. I remember that feeling of burnout and, and also just a, a lot of fear associated with mm-hmm. the performance of comprehensive exams and how much attention they, they seem to garner among, among students. And I did some research and I've just finally published the first article conveying some of this research in the Canadian Geographer in a special issue on mental health and well-being. And this research that I did was with women working um, in academia about their experiences of stress and work mm-hmm. life. So I, I interviewed people and I asked them to walk through the different phases of their career. I interviewed people who were ranging from being senior kind of PhD students close to finishing to full professors. And a lot of people went back to graduate school and the PhD program and precisely the comprehensive exam Mm. as a moment where they realized both kind of what was possible and what was expected. And so in my kind of overarching analysis of the data that I gathered, I think graduate school and also assistant professor life is is a really intense period of institutional subject making where people learn, um, Mm. you know, what's expected. Um, People talked about it in the interviews almost as a kind of social Darwinism, you know, like if you're going to make it, this is Mm. what you have to do. And there's this kind of bravado, macho model of, you know, what can I do with these exams? (laughs) You know, like how far can I push myself? And I think that culture of overwork extends into, into the professors, you know, the life of the professor as well. Um, and that may be a shift in the life of the professor, because I think certainly, you know, when I was an undergraduate many years ago, I had this image of, you know, the professor with the pipe and the, you know, kind of tweed elbows and the, you know, idyllic, kind of idyllic life of the mind. Mm-hmm. And really nothing could be further from the truth in terms yeah. of how I understand my own my own work life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, that's also a part of slow scholarship, though, is to, to think about what is it that that is required for the conduct of meaningful scholarship because it actually requires time for thought and time for reading, time for writing in ways that don't, you know, burn you out and, and, you know, people talk about binge writing and all these different ways of trying to cram that work that's supposed to be so central to our lives as scholars into their, you know, kind of frenetic work life. Yeah, my advisor told me during comps one day I was complaining about something that I was reading that I thought was just terrible. And he said, don't complain about anything that you're reading because this is really the last time if you stay in academia that you're going to get, you're just going to have a chance to read widely. Yeah. Like, just enjoy it. Even if something is terrible, you have the opportunity to do it. And it's the last time that you're actually going to be a full-on intellectual. Yeah. Because once you join the academy, the intellectual work isn't at the, necessarily at the forefront, yeah. which is kind of backwards as to what yeah. the academy is kind of supposed depressing. to be. Right? Yeah, it's depressing. Um, or you have to fight for it. You have to mm. really fight for that. And I think that's uh, definitely that's a, 
I shared that I shared that misconception when I I remember when I was on the job market as a PhD student. I remember asking people, "Oh, what what kind of ideas are you debating here? You know, <laughs> yeah. what are the intellectual debate?" And then I and then when I joined faculty, I realized, yeah, you don't you don't you don't even have time to talk about ideas. You're mm-hmm. you're talking about you know budget cuts or right. curriculum yeah. and things like that. But also. We need to talk about ideas. Right. <laughs> it is what we do. That's the job. Exactly. That's the whole job. Exactly. Or, yeah. We teach them. We write about them. We do scholarship. We do research. We need these are these are important things to fight for. Right. And so how you know, how how are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and how are we how are we all going to do it? Because we you know it's easier for one person to try to you know make their way up the ladder get tenure and then kind of disappear and that's the risk of that that particular kind of institutional subject making you know mm-hmm. like the rewarding people for kind of squirreling away and saying no right. and and that that's one model mm-hmm. um, but i'm i'm hopeful for <laughs> another kind of model mm-hmm. and and i'm i'm rewarded by another kind of model one that that promotes engagement and collaboration um, along the way. Now, the collaboration stuff is really interesting to me, and, and Tracy and I have talked about it with all of you who have done collaborative work, because I never have. Uh, I guess the website, to a certain extent, is a collaborative project, but I was not involved in the founding of the website. I came on once the website was established. But one of the things that, that I, I hate, perhaps more than anything else, are meetings. <laughs> um, I really, I really don't like them. I organized, I helped organize the graduate student conference at the University of Ottawa one year. Mm-hmm. We had a meeting at the start mm-hmm. and a meeting at the end, and I refused to hold any other meetings because I just hated them so much. Especially when there's more than four people mm-hmm. there, I always feel that nothing really gets done. Mm-hmm. So I, I would always rail against meetings and mm-hmm. this idea of you know, there's no, no one ever built a statue to a committee. So, so I personally don't like them, but I think it might be related to history, and, and historians tend to write on their own, I think, more than other disciplines, at least in the humanities, mm-hmm. from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about collaboration, what I imagine is a meeting of 11 people mm-hmm. sitting around and sort of talking around ideas mm-hmm. without any decisions being made. Hmm. I'm sure you're going to tell me that's not accurate, yeah. but <laughs> for someone like me or, or perhaps other historians who may have that same perception, mm-hmm. you know, how do you get people who are averse to collaboration to buy into it? Like all, all my training is on my own. Everything I've ever done has been on my own for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, to to go towards collaboration would be a major shift in my approach to scholarship. Mm-hmm. So, so how, how would you try and get someone like me on board? Well, I guess, first of all, you don't have to collaborate. You know, right. I don't, I think if someone's averse to collaboration, it might not be the best thing for them right. to collaborate. But I would encourage you to try it because right. you might be surprised and you might really have fun. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's something dialogic about 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 ideas, about writing, and so it can be a, a total pleasure being able to to talk through you know the process that we often embark on on our own independently as as, as scholars as writers, and so. 
I have had many different kinds of collaborations along the way, some through research, others through kinds of activism, and others through, through writing, research and writing. And so there are so many different models. I don't think it, they necessarily have to involve meetings. You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and maybe good. there's a threshold. I mean, do two people in a room, does this constitute a meeting? Right, I don't yeah. know. Um, but to give you an example, those 11 people who co-authored that paper, once that conference in 2013 in Guelph was over, we never actually met again. We didn't meet mm. and sit around a big boardroom kind of table trying to write this paper. Um, We used the wonders of of technology um, to our advantage, and it really worked. People often ask us about how we wrote the paper. We used Skype and Dropbox. So um, I think I started, I just wrote something one day and then sent out an email and a Dropbox link and said, hey, I just started writing this. Does anyone want to join me? Uh, I put the paper up on Dropbox, so just save a new version and keep going, whoever feels like writing it. And when people had time, they started doing it. And that's how we started. Um, It was this kind of free-for-all, whenever people had a moment, and often people only had a moment. (laughs) Um, And that uh, that reality actually makes its way into the paper. People write about the irony (laughs) of trying to make time to write a paper on slow scholarship. But then eventually, once we had a draft, then we would start. There were some meetings through Skype where mm. we would we would talk about the paper and where it was headed. And also, a lot of our live conversations were just about process. Like, how are, how are we going to proceed from here? We have 11 of us, you know, right. who's going to edit? Do we need... Often, we would set up editing chains, so we would pass mm. the paper then from one person to the next so that you didn't have two people working on it at the same right. time and just the sheer logistics of, you know, not having conflicting copies. So that was some of the coordination of it. But I think we we had that experience of being at a conference together and enjoying each other and getting to know each other. And then we really, um, somehow that was kind of leveraged into this working relationship through this paper. And actually, some of us went on, different combinations of us went on at conferences to actually host some um, workshops where we engaged the audience in slow scholarship mm-hmm. and people were generating more ideas and talking it through. So it's sort of become a vehicle for more collaboration mm-hmm. and unexpected kinds of communications and connections and solidarity with people. Um, lots of people have written to us from other parts of the world and other corners of the university where we w- might not realize there were affinities and connections. Right. They write to us to, to tell us, like, hey, I'm I'm an administrator and I work in, you know, human resources and we love this idea of slow scholarship <laughs> and we're having meetings to discuss it mm. or hey, I'm in the arts and we're, we want to change our process and it's just been really surprising uh, the ways that it and that's I mean that's one of the things I love about collaboration is that it's it's the unexpected that can unfold right. um and also the idea that if you find good ways of working together Maybe 11 people can accomplish a lot more than you can alone. Um, right, right. And so it's full of, I suppose it's also full of potential. Mm-hmm. So when you read the paper back, can you tell what you wrote? Or is it sort of like this conglomerate piece now that you can't yeah. identify particular individuals throughout that it's all Both. a group thing? Both? Both. Some, in some cases, I remember something that I wrote or that another colleague contributed and in other cases, I cannot recall exactly who wrote a, a particular line or even if I wrote a particular line. Right. And that was kind of part of also the process of writing the paper over time, which is that it started off 
with all these individual experiences that people had had, you know, this is, you know, I have this, I had this experience, I had this frustration, or I feel shame about this, or it started with a lot of kind of guilt-ridden narratives about work. Mm. Um, and that's part of the point too, right? right. Like everyone is suffering uh, under this kind of, these temporal regimes, but but kind of afraid to talk about it or isolated in their <laughs> suffering. And so when we started to share the stories, it's not that we were sharing universal experiences, but that they started to coalesce around certain themes mm. and the voices also started to come together. And so we made the decision together to take out the names that had originally been attached to stories mm. that were in the paper so that it, it, it sound, although there are 11 co-authors, it starts to sound more like one voice. Mm. Um, and I think, again, having 11 people working together and editing a document could be a nightmare, but in right. this case, <laughs> worked really well because you just had a lot of a lot of skills being mm. put into into this document into editing it in a way. So I think the the outcome was really good. Do you think that this idea of slow scholarship and and this collaborative framework uh, that that you're talking about with this particular paper? Mm-hmm. Is it specific to disciplines? I, I think of, say, poli-sci, and I'm sure a poli-sci person could correct me, but of having to produce things quickly in response to the ever-changing political atmosphere that, particularly in an election season right now, political science or scientists are putting out a lot of papers. Mm-hmm. And just the nature of the discipline may not allow mm-hmm. for this type of scholarship that that you're talking about. So do you think that this is applicable university-wide, like academy-wide, or would each discipline perhaps have to adopt it in their own way to reflect Mm -hmm. just the realities Mm -hmm. of of what they do? Slow scholarship is not necessarily slow, and it's not necessarily slow writing. This is something that Carl Honoré, who's the author of... um, a really popular book called, I think it's called Slow, about all things slow, Mm. slow food, slow everything, slow living, slow working, says, you know, it's not just, it's not actually just about time and it's not just about slowness. It's about changing how we work together. And so you may have a person who's a really fast writer. And in fact, you know, the the opinion piece in University Affairs that you mentioned, we we wrote that very quickly. Mm. And in some ways we wrote the original article pretty quickly as well together. But the question is, how do we engage people around us in the things that we do day to day as, as, as faculty, as workers in the university? How can we challenge the counting culture in particular forms of like these review activities that have to do mm. with continue? I mean, you spend so much time on this, like annual reports and reporting, you know, how many this, how many that, and then counting when you're on a tenure and promotion committee, how many this, how many that, you know, we know what the this and the that is. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned it, you know, when you, when you applied for funding from Shirk. So it's, I think it's, you know, how do we, how do we work in ways that understand that people are going to have more or less productive times in their careers or slower and faster times in their careers because we're all people with complicated lives and we're all people who, 
engage in care work or need to be cared for at different times. And so how can the university be a more inclusive place? So I think if political scientists, who, by the way, also, you know, write lots of collaborative papers, Mm -hmm. but if their model is to, you know, work quickly in response to the political landscape, I don't think that necessarily is at odds with some of the ideas behind slow scholarship as ways of working. Um, So they're not necessarily just about slow, but they're about kind of critical reflection, about thinking about how we engage each other Mm. and, and doing so in ways that don't just constantly like you you can spend your every day kind of responding to the things coming your way around you know reporting and you know more and more of this and less and less of that (laughs) and so to do things a little bit differently takes concerted effort Mm. it and and that's why I think the collective is so important because Mm. it's pretty hard to do it alone Um, we have to support each other and and that work may not be the same work it may not even be the day-to-day actual scholarship that we're doing it may be finding ways to have conversations about it you know my my guess is that you are collaborating every day (laughs) it may not be in the form of writing co-authored articles or books but it's in the form of doing podcasts and and finding great ways for conversation to be had and shared so i think um it's thinking imaginatively about Mm. how to how to reflect and speak back and 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 try to change some of the work cultures that are out there. Now, one of the things you said was this notion of care and the the complicated life lives that people have, mm-hmm. and and things are ever shifting. And and certainly, you could see that as you know people grow like you know people grow up and you know life happens right like mm-hmm. real real world things happen. And and one of the things that I get the sense from the, the article is that you feel as though these burdens or the, the paper argues that these burdens are are more damaging to the careers of women and minorities. Mm-hmm. Would that be fair for me to, to characterize it in that way? Yeah, or I mean, I might just phrase it in a different way, but that that our work, all work, including our work in the university, is gendered and is racialized. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's important to understand why and how and what the effects are. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, so I'm a white man, and my one experience in sort of a, a genuine job setting, I guess outside of this one, or one of the the few experiences I've had, mm-hmm. it was it was an experience. I won't say where it was, but we were all sort of working together and all doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it was towards the end of my time there that the question of money came up and how much everybody was making Mm -hmm. and at the start Mm -hmm. when I was hired they presented me with an hourly figure Mm -hmm. and I said well what if we went to this hourly figure Mm -hmm. and so so we negotiated Mm -hmm. and I was working with several women and we were talking about this one day Mm -hmm. and none of them did the same thing Mm -hmm. when they were initially presented with the offer Mm -hmm. so for whatever however long it was that we were all sitting at the same table doing the same thing. I was making more money, unbeknownst to me, unbeknownst to them, mm-hmm. simply because that initial offer, I went back and said, how about we talk about this? Yeah. And initially I felt bad mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. But then I thought about and I thought, well, should I feel bad about that? Mm-hmm. And then I came to the conclusion that I don't know <laughs> and that I'm just conflicted mm-hmm. about whether I should feel bad because they were free, in theory, to do the same thing, right. didn't do it. And in talking to them, 
the, their their sense was that women who try to negotiate with an employer yeah. are not looked upon as favorably by the employer as if a man does it. And so we, we actually got into these very, I, I felt, productive, engaging conversations about the, the, genu- the genuine differences in work environment between men and women that go beyond simply pay and compensation. Mm-hmm. There are a variety of things that, that are at play here. So for you, in looking at the, the gender dynamic mm-hmm. to this, mm-hmm. clearly it's not just an academic problem. No. It's a so just more social, cultural thing. Mm-hmm. So how would what you're prescribing in the paper mm-hmm. help address the wider issues? Like, is this a situation where the academy can perhaps take a lead on these issues? To me, the most critical part of the anecdote that you just told me is that there was a silence surrounding, um, Mm. you know, your wages. Yes. And then eventually there was a revelatory moment, a moment of sharing, a moment of candor, and that this led to some really creative and constructive conversations. And then what I would say that the that could subsequently lead to is, okay, how might we then work collectively to change this? And it's not, I mean, there are lots of important individual stories of, you know, like what happens to each of us. And then there are lots of statistics (laughs) that that show, (laughs) that contextualize um, that those individual stories are not isolated, but in fact part of patterns. What are those patterns? Those patterns have to do with women being socialized to be nice and not to ask for or demand things. And certainly, you know, I could share lots of anecdotes as well. The question is, how do we work to collectively change that reality? Because, of course, the people on the other end of the negotiations are socialized, as, as you note, as well, in the way that they understand such requests. Yes. So I think that collectively, one of the things that we talk about is mentoring and share. You know, I think it's really important that moment when... For example, with PhD students that I've advised, the moment they get that offer, you know, that first offer, uh, whatever kind of offer it is, to talk with other people, um, both people at that university, but also beyond about their experiences of negotiating and what's possible. Mm. I remember, you know, I worked with a PhD supervisor who was a wonderful, very bright man, and who got his job, you know, his academic job, I think in 1973, sometime in the early 1970s, and has had the same job ever since. Mm. So he might not necessarily know. In fact, I remember him telling me, I'm not the person to ask about negotiations. (laughs) I don't have a clue, you know, about how things work nowadays or what's possible. Um, and so I needed to talk to people who did. Um, and some, some of my colleagues gave me really good advice who dealt with gender inequities and pay. They told me things like, ask them to look at the last five hires they did and to make sure that you're given something along the lines of those five hires, you know, so that there are ways in, in that specific negotiation of trying to not, you know, again, be the isolated um, person. Um, and in fact, in my first job, I was offered a quote unquote gentle gentleman's agreement. I was asked not mm. to discuss my salary. I eventually learned that I had the lowest salary. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so there, so there are just 
ways of sharing information and and talking to each other but if we don't talk to each other we don't know and you asked me at one point earlier when we talked about doing this podcast about some of the main differences between Canadian and American yeah. institutions and I think this is one of them you know Canadian institutions have much higher rates of unionization so it's like for example when I was a graduate student in Canada I was unionized when I was a grad student in the US I was not when I was a, as a faculty member in, in Canada I'm unionized as a faculty remember in the U.S. I was not. And one of the key differences is that um, unions play a lot of important functions, and one of them is around equity and around doing studies of of, um, salaries and wages of workers and and then having actual infrastructure and policies in place um, to bring those into line. And so I have experienced a much more transparent um, set of practices and procedures in Canadian institutions than I have, both around hiring, around promotion, around pay, than I have in the U.S. And I think part of it is also the private-public difference. Sure, yeah. So in the U.S. you have so many yeah. more private institutions than public, whereas in Canada you have almost no, not very few. So again, I think there's a higher uh, level of accountability among public institutions. Mm-hmm. So there are the individual stories which are important, but I think there's the the moment where the collective realizes it's a yeah. collective. You know, like right. okay, we're in this together. What are we gonna What are we gonna do about it? Right. Yeah, because we we were there for you know six months before. We talked about it, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, because um, you know you're you're next to somebody for eight hours a day, yeah, and you talk about almost everything else, yeah, yeah. Um, but not how much money you're making, yeah. Because there's this idea of you you just don't talk about it, of it's course, just, right? Yeah, um, and at least for for me, because I sort of negotiated, I I assumed that not everybody was making the same, yeah, but I just assume that everyone had negotiated something yeah and then i was so wrong about yeah. about that but yeah. then if we if we pull it back though to the the academy mm-hmm. and one of the things you talk about is sort of the precarity of work mm-hmm. that that exists now and you, you cited those stats mm-hmm. and that's sort of the situation that i'm going into for next year at least in, in sort of these short-term type jobs yeah and i'm wondering is that perhaps reflective, too, of not only the way the universities are administered, mm-hmm. but changing patterns of enrollment as well. Because mm-hmm. uh, at least in history departments, enrollments are down, mm-hmm. and it's therefore harder to, for faculties to justify mm-hmm. full tenure lines mm-hmm. as enrollments go down. And one of the things I, I, I wonder as we move forward... Mm-hmm. And the knowledge economy continues to change. Will tenure one ex- exist, or, or will it still be this idea of permanence that goes along with it? Because my advisor mentioned to me that you know, in his tenure stuff, when he got tenure, there's that line that says, you know, if there's the funding, it's still dependent on funding. Mm-hmm. And funding, you know, like if they decide to collapse the department, then okay, like your tenure doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm curious. Is it simply a shift that is going on? Again, this seems society-wide that a lot of pe- more people are in these sort of scenarios where this permanent job where you're at for 30 years mm-hmm. isn't really a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And is that simply reflective of other mm-hmm. things as opposed mm-hmm. to necessarily mm-hmm. a shift just in the academy? 
I think you make an important point, which is that this kind of career path that a person has the same job for their entire work life or a job for 30-something years is, is no longer the case, no longer so common, both in academia but also in other industries. And I was giving you an example of people I graduated from university with, um, and in a group of people we could think of only one who had, <laughs> had the same job. Um, and they were working in all, you know, not most of them not in academia, in all kinds of, of industries. Um, and then you also asked about enrollments, and is it the case that enrollments are going down, and mm-hmm. therefore that's why the structure of work is changing. And again, I think that's part of the st- I think all of these things are part of the story. And certainly, you know, again, public institutions, state universities, or in the, in the Canadian system, the provincial funding mm-hmm. affects year to year what kind of resources are available. You know, at Wilfrid Laurier, we hear each year what our enrollments are. And certainly a, sh- a major shift just even in the time that I've been working at universities has been, you know, the bummed, bums in seats movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how many people are mm-hmm. in the classes? And certainly, you know, in, in more in Canadian context, I think it's less likely that, cla- or in state universities, it's less likely that classes are going to run if they don't have a right. good enrollment because those resources will be seen as being squandered. You know, it's not enough students. So I think there's this movement towards understanding that really, you know, valuing that relationship, the number of people, and so on. And I think also the, there's a kind of a chicken and egg relationship, mm. right? So if you can't hire new faculty in a department because you're not getting enough seats in, then your number of faculty lines are going to shrink, the number of courses are mm. going to shrink, you're not going to be able right. to get more students in. Right. And, and I've seen that, you know, in my own departments, that, there, that there's this chicken and egg. Like, how do we show that what we do is so important and relevant and needs to continue to be so in order to keep replenishing and replacing our our workforce so in certain ways or with certain kinds of positions. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a definitive answer on that, but I think there's no doubt that the restructuring is having seismic effects on mm-hmm. universities and that we're, we're living them right now. We're living through those changes and we can't necessarily, I feel like we're at a moment where we, we haven't seen the outcome yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the history of this era hasn't been written. Right. But the struggle is real. Right, right. And I, I wonder too about it for students. I mean, I went to a small school where there were no graduate programs. So mm-hmm. all of my courses were taught by faculty, full-time mm-hmm. faculty members. Mm-hmm. I think we had a couple of lecturers, but I think they still had two, two teaching loads sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I never had the experience of a graduate student teaching a course Mm -hmm. or a postdoc teaching a course Mm -hmm. and then when I went to the University of Ottawa and they asked me to teach Mm -hmm. or that the opportunity to teach presented itself Mm -hmm. when I was a graduate student I thought this is kind of this is cool for me personally Mm -hmm. but at the same time for the students Mm -hmm. you know this is my first time teaching something and you know how does it work for them and you know if this was a one-off then okay, like one course ultimately doesn't make that big of a difference. But if 70% of courses or whatever the crazy percentage is that is being taught by lecturers and graduate students in certain universities or in certain departments, mm-hmm. like that could also hurt the student experience. And, you know, how much engagement then the students have with the faculty, the full-time faculty who, again, in theory, are the ones who are, you know, the leaders in the field. Mm-hmm. And, you know, does that not then hurt the 
educational experience. And so there's huge ramifications that go to me that are beyond just, you know, the lecturer who isn't getting paid enough, who is mm-hmm. overworked mm-hmm. and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it boils down to also just if you think of it as a business, yeah. which a lot of administrators seem to do, mm-hmm. then the product in the classroom that you're producing in certain mm-hmm. cases could be compromised mm-hmm. by it. So it, it really is a more complicated thing than I think at least when I've talked or heard deans talk about it, they don't necessarily address that end of it, mm-hmm. the actual quality of the educational experience. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a smart observation, and I think it's not just in the classroom that that matters, but beyond the classroom. So, you know, I think about my, so I have small children, and one day they'll go to university, and I think mm-hmm. about, you know, what will the university look like that they attend, and what kind of environment can I hope for for them? Right. And Um, You know, for myself and for my colleagues and for my children as future students, I hope for an environment where there's meaningful engagement. (laughs) It's so simple, but (laughs) so challenging Mm -hmm. in in kind of the the times that we live in for people. You know, people talk constantly about like needing to close their door or not be present or, you know, create boundaries and squirrel away and. And there are universities um, where it's very difficult to access the professors. And I understand both sides of that equation, but I think it's unfortunate for everybody, right. you know? So I think, yeah, again, I don't know, I don't know where this is all going, but um, I do wonder, you know, what, what part, what small part we can all try to play mm-hmm. in it. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it, it, it is, and, and we would highly recommend people go read these two articles, the University Affairs editorial, All for Slow Scholarship and Slow Scholarship for All, was published on May 9th. So if you just Google that title, University Affairs, I'm sure it'll be the first thing that that comes up. And the other one in ACME, which is an open access journal, For Slow Scholarship, A Feminist Politics of Resistance Through Collective Action. Same thing, if you Google that, I'm I'm sure it'll come up. Mm -hmm. Probably the first thing that comes up. Mm -hmm. And because it's open access, Everybody can go can find it, it, which is great. And and like you said, you early on you had thirty thousand downloads, so it's yeah. obviously resonating with a lot yeah. of folks. Yeah. So that is Allison Mounts. Get comfortable. I'm going to read the titles again because they're so they're just crazy long. The William Lyon Mackenzie King, visiting professor of Canadian studies in the Canada program at Harvard University, and the Canada Research Chair of Global Migration at the Balsillie School at Laurier. You can find her on Twitter at Allison Mounts, A-L-I-S-O-N-M-O-U-N-T-Z. And if you're interested in her research outside of talking about the slow scholarship stuff on migration and asylum, her book, Seeking Asylum, Human Smuggling and Bureaucracy at the Border, and this year I've learned a lot about just the concept of the border issues with migration and asylum and that I would use the word conference that you organized mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. It was really interesting for me to sit in on the, the sessions I sat in on and, mm-hmm. and uh, really, really interesting stuff. So I would recommend everybody go check all that stuff out. So Allison, Mount, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, history slam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.